But I think that you know, if you're thinking about this as, as a, sh a short-term problem and having the, the right talented person, whether it be an MA or a nurse or an embryologist or lab director or, or a physician, that is critical to being able to grow and serve your patients in the marketplace. Welcome to the Coronavirus Business Response Series of Inside Reproductive Health. Here, you'll be updated on the latest insights on managing and owning a fertility business or IVF center during the COVID-19 pandemic. We put out free podcasts, webinars, and articles as soon as new topics arise, so make sure to subscribe to stay updated. The best way to help us in return is to share this episode with someone in the fertility field that would find it useful. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. I'm trying to keep these webinars as topical as possible, and this came up as a question that people have been asking me about, and so we're putting them together as they're happening, and we're pretty well diversified here. TJ Farnsworth is the CEO of Inception Fertility Ventures, which is the largest fertility network in North America. Dr. Belsos is the CEO and founding physician of Vios Fertility, which is one of the fastest independent, fastest growing independent practices in the continent. And Dr. Alvaro is at Stanford, but he's also the vice president of SREI. So while we don't have, uh, well, we can't speak for every group uh, and we can't speak for every possible circumstance, we might be able to speak to the groups of, of the folks that are here. And we have insight fairly well represented, missing maybe the solo practitioner or the smaller groups. Maybe I kind of want to uh, just start with you, Dr. Alvaro, uh, with respect to what you may or may not be hearing from SREI. No small part of the reason why we're having this discussion is because I'm getting a lot of emails from fellows asking if, if they're still going to have a job in the, the fall or if things are going to be pushed back, that things are going to be different. So what are you seeing, if anything, from an yeah. aggregate level? You know, it's this is a, a pretty fast-paced uh, situation. Everything is evolving pretty quickly. Since I, I only found out about this uh, last day or two, um, I did try to reach out to the SREI membership and really didn't get much of a response. But over the past 24 hours, I have had a chance to talk to a lot of the fellowship directors, as well as um, a lot of chairs, uh, both through the ASRM uh, webs, you know, um, webinars that we've had and, and other meetings that we've had. Near as I can tell, there are not going to be a lot of changes in terms of hiring. That Nobody had heard about any declinations of hire or delay in hire or anything like that. Now, maybe it was a very biased population sample, so it may be that they're out there, but I have not heard of anybody at this point in time uh, that uh, gotten a communication from their purported uh, new place and say, well, you know, we're going to push things back. If anything, what I'm hearing more is that everybody's kind of starting to ramp up for the, uh, for the, what we expect to be the, in the next few weeks, the startup of cycles. And in addition to the startup of cycles, we're going to be pretty busy because we're going to have a pretty big backlog, uh, all of us private and, and academic. 
in terms of the patients that were canceled at the very end. Uh, so what I'm hearing is that people are anxious to have more manpower as things uh, progress. Uh, obviously, there's a bit of uncertainty as to you know what happens. Are there going to be flare-ups in terms of you know new cases or, or surges in cases as people kind of relax their restrictions? Nevertheless, I think the anticipation is that things are going to be busy uh, come the summer and fall. Dr. Beltos, are you planning on ramping up? Are you planning on keeping the, the same onboarding time frame that you were? What's it like from your vantage point? We are on the same schedule as we were for onboarding our new physicians and mm -hmm. our strategic plans to grow. That remains the same. TJ, you're in a number of different markets. Does it depend on the market? Yeah, I think we're 70 plus clinics across the country. So uh, I don't know how many fellows have signed with which practices, but I can, I can say unequivocally that quite a number of the new outcoming fellows are joining one of our practices from around the nation. And so <clears throat> what I can tell you is that for us, we look at human capital as the most important thing on our balance sheet. And so the right, the right talented physician is critical for our long-term growth of the business. I think all of us, Angie, Ruben, everybody that's, that's part of this industry and seeing this, none of us question the long-term viability of, our, of this industry, the, the growth trajectory that it's on, even if you look at the statistics of how the industry grew through the Great, great Recession. 07, 08, 09, you know, you just don't, you know, I think we can all agree that the United States is going to be entering, or is in a recession uh, as a result of COVID-19, but that does not impact, in our opinion, the opportunity for growth within our marketplaces. And, and we are a group of practices, but we're a business that is our doctors. I mean, without the doctors, there is no business. And so without the right talented physicians, and they're hard to find, the right ones are really hard to find. And so the extent that we found somebody that we want, and we feel like meets that grade in terms of being the right type of doctor for us in one of our practices, we are not shying off at all on that. Dr. Harrington, a friend of mine who couldn't make it today, gave me a number of questions that I can ask it. In, in the event that I run out of any, and I'm not planning on it, but one, one of the things that we're both wondering is, do we see the market shrinking or going flat in the 12 months after we reopen? We're not talking about uh, 2020 because that will for sure be a decline, but the 12 months from when operations resume. But I think what's really hard to define is what constitutes as operations resuming or what counts as reopening. Anyone want to take a stab at that? I think if you look at the life cycle of a patient from new patient visit to, and, and that includes calling or creating a, a new patient visit. So the moment they contact, whether it be electronically or by phone, that clinic, they come in, they do their evaluation, they enter into treatment. What you will see is there's always this lull between that moment where they contact the new patient visit and the time that they start doing uh, things like retrievals and transfers. What I do think will happen around the world due to this pause is that's going to hit volume, you know, three to six months down the pipeline, depending on what your clinic does and how quickly patients go from 
that new patient visit into treatment. Some have a little bit longer delay. It may be related to mandates where certain insurances require certain things. And, um, and also your, your grew. So some clinics put people on birth control pills, et cetera. But in regards to that volume, what I anticipate will happen is that we'll, we'll see that dip and then eventually it'll, it'll come back into normal levels. Some of this is dependent on the fertility clinics, but a lot of it has to do with the economy at large and people being furloughed and, and having a certain amount of liberal cash in their pocket to do treatment if they have to pay, you know, whether they have job security. And at some point, this will become a priority for them one way or the other. I agree with that. I think, I think that depending on markets, uh, you know, varying different percentages of patients are going to come uh, through referrals from OBGYNs. Uh, to the extent that patients are not seeing their OBGYN, they're not getting referred to the fertility clinic, you will see some impact associated with that. But at the same time, the patient, unlike friends and neighbors who might be in other, other industries, such as hospitality, restaurants, those kinds of things, the same patient who wanted a baby on March 15th wants a baby on May 15th. And so <clears throat> I think we're going to see a a surge in patient volume that, that uh, Ruben was referring to earlier um, uh, coming out of this. And then I think it, uh, Angie's probably right that we will see some level of a, of a dip unless we see a surge in referrals coming from OBGYNs and other places over the next few weeks, which is yet to be seen. I think we may see a dip three to six months in. But if you think about the compound annual growth rate of cycles being performed in the U.S., I don't think that we, I have any concerns of a uh, leveling off or a decrease in the amount of IVF cycles being performed. It, it, it may just mean that we're not growing at the same percentage we would have otherwise uh, for a year or so, but it's, it's still going to be strong, healthy growth. Well, while I don't want to infer too much from our experience in 2008 when we had the, the Great Recession, there are some experiences uh, and some data that we have from that that I think is possibly um, going to inform how we respond. Now, this is going to be, I think, a recession that's more unpredictable and probably deeper than what we experienced back then. But if you can infer anything, one of the things that uh, Mark Horstein actually had a really good paper that looked at the, essentially what was the price elasticity. So even though there was an expectation with a deep dive in the economy that there would be a greater than predicted decrease in uh, the number of cycles seen, it, it wasn't. You know, they, they, the, the price elasticity stayed pretty much the same. And in fact, anything, if anything, the recovery was, you know, after a few months was back up to close to baseline. Different recession, different times, but TJ is absolutely right. Patients, um, this is something that's a very deep motivation in the patients that we see, and I think that they will, will be motivated to, to come back uh, rather quickly. Yeah, I mean, my wife and I went through our own two and a half year journey with infertility. I can tell you we would have leveraged everything to be able to uh, have our family, and I think many of our patients are in that position. I am too, I, I share your, your caution, Ruben, in comparing this economic downturn, the one that we're upon right now with the last one, because a recession is when you lose 35% of your business in six months, not when 100% of it gets shut down in a week. This yeah. is really something different. And so, and I, that also means that the recovery might be very different and that there might be spikes as well. But I wonder if this is also the eve of a disruption of referral patterns. So what we see, what, what we know from our data, this is coming from our own clients, an aggregate of our own clients. And it's also coming from an abstract we're putting together for ASRM this year. It's 60% of IVF patients 
chose their REI based on referral from their physician. 60%, not 100. But now, but that's still a really big chunk. And now they're not seeing their their OBGYN at this time. They're not going for the visits that they had. And that's probably at least a, a two to three month chunk. Maybe it's a four month chunk, maybe it's a six month chunk. And so to your point, TJ, people will do any, the, the demand doesn't go down, but what's already a long pathway, maybe two and a half years by the time somebody decides to go see their OB versus when they finally find when they finally get pregnant from treatment is is it a referral do you, do you see referral pattern changing I think they might change in the short term I, I think that in the long term uh, patients have a relationship with their OB gyms they have a trust with them and they'll continue to rely on them for referrals now we are seeing just generally speaking an increase in the amount of self-directed patient referrals period paragraph separate from COVID-19. I think that can, trend will continue. I don't think that we're going to see a sea shift in um, you know, an acceleration of the end of the OB-GYN referral. I, I, don't, I don't see that. I think it may be the case for a period of time where they're not visiting their OB-GYN, but I think, I think it'll return to that and then return to its already existing path, you know, pathway towards less and less reliance on OB-GYN referrals and more and more self-directed patients. So none of you are seeing a delay in, or from, from your vantage point, you're not seeing a delay in, in bringing in new doctors that perhaps, let's say, were supposed to start in August. But what if there's, what if there's a continuation in the lockdowns or the stay-at-home orders, or we're able to return and, and treat patients, but we're only doing IVF for patients with real DOR or or, or 40 or over 38 or only a segment. Um, and, you know, you're a group with 12 REIs doing the work of five or six. Why, why would you bring on the one or two that were supposed to start in the summer? Um, I think it's about whether you're playing the short-term game or the long-term game. Yeah. In, in, in academic, on the a- academic side, there's, it's a little bit different because we are part of an institution and that institution has a say in it. And so in, in our case, and this is something that I've heard of other academic practices as well, is that if they have an offer letter, if the plan is to, to Angie's point, you know, long-term planning continues, then we are still continuing to, to assume that the future will, will ultimately, maybe after two years or maybe sooner, um, we'll be pretty close to where we are right now once a vaccine comes around and so forth. So the planning right now is to try to be careful in the short term, but really assume that the long term is going to go back to, if not the same way we practiced before, we're going to be socially distancing our, you know, right now we're remapping the clinic so that everybody's at least six feet apart, even with full component. And that's, you have to be clever to do that. And then, um, but, but that ultimately we're going to be able to continue, you know, to take care of the patients. Those, you know, one in eight couples that are infertile are not going away uh, with COVID-19. And I think that that demand, that push to, to have a family is going to continue, uh, whether in the short term or cert- but certainly in the long term. So that makes sense if we're talking about doctors, I guess, because 
we're all competing for 40 docs at tops that come out of fellowship each year. And there's a lot of people on this call right now that have not been able to prove new doctors. You have to have the markets and the the scheme that, that TJ has. You have to have the brand that Angie has built. You have to uh, just be the right program in the right city for a lot of people. And there's a lot of smaller markets, smaller programs, especially that have not been able to recruit those docs. So I, I think you've just seen so such high demand for REI fellows over the last five years that it can afford to go, that that demand can afford some relief and still have everybody sign. What about other staff? What about nurses? What about IVF coordinators? What about MAs? What's it going to be like for them, Dr. Beltos? The support staff that people have in their team are sometimes more important than the doctors. And TJ's right. What the machinery is of this particular business is all on the ability to provide clinical fertility care. And that's, that's on the shoulders of the care providers and the physicians. And our equipment, if you go to sell your practice someday, it has nothing to do with the fact that your desk was really nice and you have a nice incubator. It's really about the ability of your physician to practice very good medicine and create volume. However, uh, our, you know, our team is uh, essential to us and being able to still provide the care. I know a lot of our clinics in Chicago have let some of their team members go or furloughed them. And as we ramp back up, they're going to be critical to the success of, um, of the practice. So uh, when you look at your clinical team, that includes your phlebotomist, includes your ultrasound techs if you use them, your nurses, your MAs, your coordinators. They're, they're all part of the fabric of the support net that we have as physicians. So I think that's going to be um, very important as you are, some of the docs on the call are um, owners of their own practice or, or physician leaders, and some of you are our fellows. So I think when you, if you're one of the you know, the docs, then we need to be thoughtful that we have our team when we ramp back up. And that's a delicate balance because um, you need to manage the financials. And as you said, how are we going to know what that number is going to be? So I think um, those are, those are going to be important when you look at your own clinic. Would either of you gentlemen care to add? No, I think Andrew's, Andrew's exactly right. I mean, speaking on behalf of the patient, you know, our relationship with our IVF coordinator, our nurses, uh, were just as important, if not more so, than the relationship we have with our physician as well. As, we, as time goes on in the journey, or really, the patient's relationship with the support staff is, becomes more and more important. You get there because of the doctor, you stay there because of the staff. They're, they're important, right, but if we don't have the demand for them, how can practices continue to hire for them if... I, I think this goes back to our, I think all of, the, all of our assumption that the, the demand is going to continue to grow. If, if you're talking about a scenario where we have stay-at-home orders that extend in October or something like that, then you're talking about something in a different environment. I don't think anybody's predicting that. So I think that, that assuming the demand is going to continue in the way that I think all of us, at least on this panel, are thinking it will, we still need to have talented people in support of our physicians. Agreed, but... It seems like in a normal time, if, we're, if we've got this type of growth, we're bringing on staff, support staff at this type of speed, and now we've got this, 
and we think it's going to do this for a little while, and then we think it might do this again, but we don't have that same level of consistency, and more than half of the people on this call have at least furloughed their staff. Some have, have laid off staff and made more permanent cuts. Um, at least half is probably closer to three quarters have done at least some level of furlough. How could how could we possibly as as an aggregate how could we possibly expect to see the same level of new people coming in because at least for a while we need to bring the folks who are furloughed back. Sure, I um, mean I think it, it yeah I I think that one of the things that we have to think about is the fact that we're not going back to business the way we've done it before in terms of how the the, the practice functions on a day-to-day even that granular basis there are many things that are going to have to change we're going to have to do more testing and and the question becomes do we test the patient at the beginning of the cycle right before the retrieval or both uh, we need to make sure that the patient is consented well and they understand that there's a risk that we don't know, COVID-19, and we don't know if it's uh, dangerous to babies or not, but we don't think so. But, you know, the, this is still early in, in, in the whole cycle. I, I think that the, the, the way we manage the patients uh, on a day-to-day basis is going to have to change. But I think that most places are starting to come to that conclusion that, um, and, and given that, I think that eventually patients will be coming back. And that eventuality, I think we're already starting to plan. I, uh, Lucille Packer Children's Hospital has already told us that come May 18, tier one procedures, which you know retrievals are considered tier one procedures or elective, will be starting to, to, uh, to, be, uh, to, to be done, which means that we are in the process right now of, of, of figuring out how that happens, how we do that. Uh, and the assumption is that at the beginning, it's going to be a low. We have 230 people on our list that were had plans at the time that we uh, this all uh, happened. And those are the first folks that are going to come through and in the first wave. We're figuring out how to do that, but I think we will be able to do that unless something substantially changes. If everything dramatically changes to the point where, you know, this is a, becomes more virulent or any number of other uncertain things happen, then all bets are off. I just don't know. But assuming that things, we, we're figuring this thing out, we're getting it done, then, you know, we can start seeing patients, if not at the same level, but at a fairly, fairly brisk pace. Yeah, I, I would add that, you know, I think that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel like everyone else is, that, that uh, our centers are starting to plan for coming back online or being fully operational again. And, you know, uh, we hope to be mostly fully operational by the end of May in, in, into June. And a lot of that, Griffin, a lot of the growth that you're talking about, or, you know, the growth that we were experiencing before in any one of our operations was oftentimes limited by the having the appropriately talented staff. And so think about wanting to grow in your market. There's plenty of patients for all of us. Uh, Angie, Ruben, and I, we all have uh, clinics in the same exact market with one another, and there's plenty of patients for all of us. Um, and the, the reality is, is that meeting the needs of those patients need, means that we need quality, talented staff. And it's the question of what not you're playing me. But I think that you know, if you're thinking about this as, as a, sh- a short-term problem and having a, the right talented person, whether it be an MA or a nurse or an embryologist or lab director or, or a physician, that is critical to being able to grow and serve your patients in the marketplace. And that, that is oftentimes a rate limiter to your growth in any given, at any given time. Is, is there a question of timing though? I mean, part of my just natural, my natural tendency to root for the underdog, my natural tendency to, to see David beat Goliath in many ways. And I'm thinking of the small practitioners in small markets. Is there a chance for them to maybe get, is there, is there a question of timing involved where 
where some groups might say, yes, okay, we know we need to bring people back and we know uh, we also need to keep recruiting in order to meet the eventual growth. But is there a question of timing that someone might be able to take advantage of saying, you know what, I'm going to come back maybe just a, a couple weeks sooner than my pocketbook says we should uh, in terms of, of hiring because I might not have the access to the type of talent that's available right now. Is, will, will we see that? I hope not. I mean, I think, I think that the, 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 the idea that, that I, I hope that we have a collaborative enough industry that we're not thinking to ourselves, I'm going to get open a couple of weeks faster in this market so I can steal the staff from my competitor. I, I, we're not doing that. And I, I sure hope that others aren't either, but. Yeah, I think some of that inadvertently can happen. Sure. Um, and I agree with you that those are not the ways to grow your business and to, to, to help the world go around. Um, but yeah. there are going to be, and you see it already, some patient, people have been let go and are looking for a position. I do agree with the comment that this, I think, Ruben, you, you know, said, this is our new reality and it's going to be this way because COVID is not going away in two weeks nor two months. Um, and so we're looking at months and years of this. If you're a fellow, you know, and you're, you're in this precarious position of either not having secured quite exactly what you're doing, or you want to know what might be going on, understanding some of the questions that are being brought up here, will your location that you signed up for, will that be the same location as the leaders that you've got a couple on the call here today, is that their strategy short term to get you, you know, to keep their business afloat? I would expect some lower volumes and you're to start, if you're a fellow graduating now, you're going to start in the midst of the dip. And so we expect to see lower volumes. So if you were expecting a bonus, um, I expect, you know, that that may be less going into your first year. Um, one of the things we've uh, learn too is um, just a good, I don't know if the word's reality check, but also to, to understand that as you graduate from your fellowship and there, whether you go academic, whether you go private practice, you are now part of a team. And no matter if you're a shareholder or a part of your academic uh, group and, and leadership, we as the doctors on this call and the, the leaders on this call, but also it, you can expected at any new job that it, it works really well when you come into this with rolling up your sleeves and saying, yep. what can I do to help? And you are part of ground zero. This will be something that you'll tell your grandchildren about and ground zero for um, a clinic that may have been shut down for a period of time. So we are going to ask you to help. And what I tell um, people that join Vios is what's your job, whatever it takes right? Low silos, high teamwork. And with that, you'll create a vibe um, with your career and your team members, wherever you go to be successful. But it's going to be a little bit of some work that you didn't expect maybe that you'd be helping with, depending on the circumstances of your job and location. I, I couldn't agree more. I, actually, that's, that's an excellent point, uh, Angie. Um, the, you know, when you are graduating and become um, a associate uh, fellow and then get boarded and so forth, you're part of about 1,300 people around the country. It's not a big group. And so we all know each other. We all support each other. And, and it really is uh, significant that we, we can do this because we are relatively small, but we also have 
uh, well-organized uh, ASRM and SREI are really well-organized to, to help folks. So I think I would encourage you to become involved because whether through this or any other challenge that we face, it's good to be part of a group in making those decisions. I hope it happens uh, at least a little bit. I hope some of you all let go marketing director or senior PL or a farmer up because I've been looking for a director of client success <laughs> for six months and I need a good one. And I'd like to see the, a little bit more uh, robust candidacy. So selfishly, I'm hoping at least one or two positions. I do plan to, to take advantage of this if I can. That might sound really callously, but I think that there are people on that this might be their opportunity to get nurses or, or doctors or other staff that they just simply wouldn't be able to. Hey everyone, it's Griffin. This is the break in the show where normally I do a little commercial for our small engagement. And we do have a small engagement that's relevant to the COVID-19 business response. If you're cutting marketing, if you're trying to bring back your people as quickly as possible, if you're trying to build a cache of treatment ready patients, we do have that. But I would rather use this break to just ask if you find this useful, if you would share it with a colleague, either via email or on social media, we're doing everything we can to put out as many webinars, articles, free podcasts, all free resources to include as many people from the field as we possibly can to give you resources on how to manage and operate a fertility business or an IVF center during this time. And it's changing so quickly. So if you find this useful. I would really appreciate it if you would please share it with a colleague via email or via social media and help us grow the audience, but only if you find it valuable. And hopefully you are and back to your program. Dr. Belsis, I want to piggyback on the, the point that you mentioned by bastardizing Brian Miller's question. Brian had a question about how, how clinics will modify operations in order to mitigate the risk of the transmission of the virus. Brian, I'm going to I'm going to switch up your question a little bit because we are going to do a separate webinar on uh, SOPs and bringing clinics back online during the pandemic. And I want to stick to the topic of, of bringing staff in, but Angie had concluded her last point with saying it's that our job is to do whatever it takes. Is this something that we're, we can expect new staff to see that are, are starting, whether they be doctors or support staff? that their job descriptions are, are going to change? How significantly in the next six months? In my opinion, cross-training, creating easy overlay of responsibilities when people are cross-trained, standard operating procedures, creates a nimbleness in your organization. And these are going to be very important that you know, I don't do blood draws unless it's Wednesday and the sun is shining, but otherwise I can do it. But, you know, those kinds of real tight boxes of what my job is, is not going to be acceptable. The reason for that is you're going to want to open up and you're going to do that safely and responsibly. So the more that teams can help each other do each other's jobs and split them up, social distancing, less time in the office, those kinds of things help your you execute those maneuvers. So I do think we're all in this together. And if today's your day to empty the garbage in all the rooms, we'll get at it. 
One of the things that we've experienced actually as we do this remapping and figuring out how we're going to redo everything is that it actually has been a really good opportunity for people who were leaders. I used to be Army, so small group leaders, you know, small squad leaders to step up. And they've been probably the most creative and the most helpful in terms of say, why don't we do it this way? And that'll minimize time motion stuff so that we don't infect each other. So it's been really a, a good opportunity, in a strange way, a good opportunity for a lot of folks to step up, step outside of their comfort zone and really come up with some very good ideas. And it's really kind of, for me, heartening to, to see that on a day-to-day -day basis. So a, a common theme that the three of you each have, or a common vision, I guess, is that demand will come back to, the, I mean, we've had so much demand and there, there are so many patients to serve. Uh, we do have some others in the in comments and, and in the questions in Dr. Gordon and Dr. Macarelli saying in the last recession, there was significant hits to physician income for some. Uh, yeah. There, uh, some folks have seen the cancellations and asking for refunds because they're unsure of their future in the next year or two that they might there might be a lot of people going down to one income households. That's I guess point. will how, how much of this will vary by market and by practice because I still see the overall demand being so high that even a reduction just maybe meet the capacity that we have, but. Where do you suppose we might see an imbalance in both market and practice type? I, th I think it's hard to predict. I mean, there's never been in, hi in history, even going all the way back to the Depression era, the loss of employment that occurred as quickly as it did, it has over the past uh, five weeks. And so it's hard to know how fast that will snap back. You know, the, you know, the difference of today versus uh, 07, 08, 09, the dot-com bus, the Black Monday, all the things we can remember is there isn't, there, this didn't start with a fundamental underlying flaw in the economy. It wasn't a fundamental underlying issue. Now we may have self-inflicted one, rightfully so, um, uh, to, to protect ourselves from this outside force. But it'll be interesting to see once that outside force is gone, how quickly this does stand back. And, I, and I'm not making the argument that it will, because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a ripple effect. We're already starting to see large businesses fall bankruptcy. Those people are unemployed. They don't spend money. You know, obviously consumer spending is the largest driver of the U.S. economy. They stop spending money. How does that continue? It, it is interesting, though, if you read the consumer confidence indexes, they've held relatively strong, much more so than I would have thought they would have. Uh, but it'll be an interesting economic business school case to be written here. Uh, how fast is this? Does this look like a you know, L-shaped recovery, or does this look like a V-shaped recovery in terms of how fast this comes back? Dr. Payne is from a, a group that's not totally represented here, smaller independent practice, well, five-doc group in uh, the Carolinas, and he echoes the sentiment saying that they saw a, a dip for a while, are starting to see it come back, and that they also plan to honor all the, the hires that they made, including a new doctor starting in June. So uh, I want to, thanks for contributing that, Dr. Payne. I'd also like to, I'd like to pose a question to the three of you that I got before this webinar. It was from a fellow. This person is third year. They are joining a, a large group in a fairly large city. And this person's lawyer advised them not to contact the group that they're joining. This person wants to ask the group, hey, is everything still normal? I'm supposed to start in August. 
this person said that their lawyer counseled against it. And I'm not sure if there's any reason for that. That to me, that seems like the exact opposite advice I would give. I asked if there was legal concerns. Angie, you've been in business meetings with me and you've said, Griffin, we get it. You've said that three times. It's because I and anyone who's on this call that does business with me knows that I communicate expectations until it annoys the other person. And so I can't ever empathize with mutual mystification and not reaching out. But I, I told this person before they do so, I'd ask the three of you, is there any reason why they wouldn't reach out to their group to see what's going on? No, I can't think, I'm not a lawyer, but for us, in a lot of ways, we would probably assume that it goes unsaid that we're going to honor any agreement we've entered into. So uh, so if, if we haven't communicated with someone, and you know, a lot of people have a lot of anxiety right now, whether it's related to their professional life, their personal life, they're you know, cooped up in their house, their stresses, and, and, and so if there's a way in which we can alleviate some of that anxiety by letting them know that nothing, no, they had nothing to worry about, I would want them reaching out to us. Yeah, I, I, I can't think of a situation where candid honesty is not the best solution. And That's think, right. Yeah, I think they should talk. And again, it's being part of the team even before you get there to say, there, you know, the fear is that you're going to just, you know, poke a bear. But the reality is that team is already thinking about you. They're already preparing about for you to arrive and they're thinking about strategies to survive. Um, some of the things that people have said, like Paul was saying on one of the Q&A that, you know, people are down to a one or zero income family that used to be a two income family, and that's going to have an impact on the short term business. However, be part of the solution. What really brings success is that not just identification of a problem, which is clear, um, low volume, less, less is available, but being part of the solution and being committed to the long term health of the practice that you're going to join. And I think those are going to be really important. If you are risk adverse, this is a tough time for you. For those that are like Tenant Dan and Bubba gump when the hurricane hit and we are out at the sea, you know, grab, um, grab a hold and push forward, be innovative, creative, thoughtful. I think being able to offer some of the solutions that can help couples later be successful by, you know, programs that may be a small deposit now to secure less uh, cost later on when they can afford it and jobs return. There's lots of ways to bring solutions and you bring a, a brand new set of eyes and sometimes that fresh angle can be very um, helpful to the team. And um, simultaneously is follow your leadership too. They've been doing this for years and um, listen to what they know about their practice. We have a, a question about states with mandates and do you think it'll be different in regions that are mandated versus those that aren't in your group? is in both mandated and non-mandated states and Farnsworths are non-mandated and mandated states. What do you think? I th yeah, I think in terms of, of, of mandates, obviously they make a difference and there's great data largely from Massachusetts, but from many of the mandated states that it just, there's greater access, greater demand mm -hmm. uh, for folks that have the, the, the mandate. Having said that, you know, the, the, it's not just the mandate. It's also what's negotiated increasingly. It's not just those states, but we know, we all know like progeny and, and many similar kinds of covered uh, entities are around the country. And it really depends on 
sadly a little bit the sociodemographics of the of the patient, but it's whatever they, they have covered. And so it's not just state by state anymore. I think that there's a lot of coverage in, in states you might not expect depending on what the individual uh, workplaces negotiate with uh, with insurance. So so that's going to be a little bit different. In our neighborhood here in Silicon Valley, you know, it's you know it's the the Googles and the, and the Cisco's and everybody else in that uh, neighborhood that that really uh, will probably for us anyway keep us going at the beginning before uh, you know the economy hopefully ramps up and 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 the rest of folks pile in. Yeah, these are great questions. It is very geographical, and I think that will impact a lot of things and being in a small town where there's a lot of farms compared to downtown Manhattan where people are taking public transportation, COVID is much more of an issue. And again, recovery will will depend on states that are mandated versus self-pay and how that will impact volume as well as being able to retain um, staff. Ruben had the point of there's a lot more coverage even in non-mandated states. You still see sometimes half of patients having coverage because... We actually have some markets that are in non-mandated areas that have just as much insurance coverage as some of our mandated markets. But what do you think happens with that, TJ? I mean, Progeny's been on a sales rampage the last few years, just one big company after another. I don't see that speed happening. I'm not sure if companies will shed those benefits, but like any other benefit, it becomes becomes the requisite for competing for talent. I don't think it is if unemployment is at 10% or whatever it might go to. Is, is that going to slow down these large companies offering fertility benefits, one? And then two, do you think that any might even shed it? Yeah, I, I don't see a lot. I, I wouldn't anticipate a lot of the large employers that have, that have signed on to provide the benefit shedding the benefit. I, I do think that you may see some slowing of it, but you know, for some of these companies, they are targeting an employee population that is limited, and so will remain limited even at a high employment rate market. That said, this goes back to what I said before: how fast the employment market snaps back will dictate a lot of this. You know, in mandated and in non-mandated markets, I think. I think certainly, if there's a prolonged recession, the markets and areas of the country with higher incomes uh, that have more resiliency to the recessions will see better outcomes for for those for those clinics. But that's the same for any business. I mean, that's not just unique to ours. Uh, Maria Ming brings up a, a good point. Uh, three, can any of the three of you offer insight on markets with international patients? And we know of of certain practices, especially mm-hmm. on the West Coast, where where more than half of their patients are coming from Asia. Do you have suggestions on how to rebalance that patient flow and uh, in order to retain highly trained employees that may have been that there for that purpose, especially if their marketable skill is a particular language? You know, we, we have a fair amount uh, here at Stanford of, of demand from the People's Republic, but we don't necessarily have specific skill set of folks, uh, uh, you know, MAs and so forth, or, or nurses that speak the language. I mean, I think the access to uh, languages, uh, you know, is, is through, you know, IT is so easy these days that I think we've had very little trouble communicating. And then in addition to that, many of uh, these individuals already speak English. So it's, for us, we haven't really found it a struggle, nor do we have a highly skilled uh, subset of our workers that are, you know, skilled language or otherwise. So this is uh, sort of jumping back to the topic we were talking about before, but I think it also goes for those that might have coverage through their company or just being in a mandated state. Those that are losing jobs in 
in the United States, or they're losing a job because they work at Facebook or at Google, not that those companies are cutting, but are you seeing an increase in those patients seeking treatment before their insurance runs out? We talked a little bit about that with Andy Swan and Dr. Adamson on the last webinar. Are any of the three of you seeing that? Uh, absolutely, I have. Yeah, yeah we, um, we've, had a, we've had a handful of phone calls from patients frustrated about the fact that we're not open because they're either furloughed with the concern they might lose their position, and so they have three months of benefits, and one of those benefits obviously being a fertility benefit, or they're just concerned that they're going to lose their job and want to get their process started. Yeah, so so we, and actually we do take that into account in terms of the queue, you know, as, as, as they come through again, as we're lining up the folks that are going to start coming through, because it's important. We want to take care of them as well, and, and if they're going to lose their benefits in two months, then we want to get them through sooner. Dr. Gordon, you're going to get the last word on this for this question, so I'm going to okay with veering off topic just a little bit, but I think it's still, it's still pretty relevant to staff because of how the workflow is maintained. And the question is, I think that patients will not be happy to go back to the days where we had 25 to 50 patients in the waiting room. I don't think they were happy <laughs> when that when there was no coronavirus. I especially agree with that now. Uh, I wonder if the panelists can comment on if we will truly be practicing for a prolonged time in a new way uh, in terms of patient flow in the office. I think we can assume that the new normal is the new normal for an extended period of time. Yeah, and necessity is the mother of invention and I'll say innovation. And as we re-explore efficiencies, this will be part of how we practice for now. Yeah. Hopefully for a long time to become more effective and efficient. The telemedicine and everything, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the things we've discovered is actually we like telehealth. You know, we, we yeah. maybe, you know, we did 10 a month before and now we're doing a couple of hundred. And, and so we actually discovered that it actually is something that's effective and, and works really well. So I think we're going to decant the waiting rooms just by having a huger number of telehealth visits, especially in the return visits. Yeah, I think patients like it. They found it to be more convenient. The feedback we've had is really good. And I, Ruben, I've had the exact same feedback from a lot of our physicians across the country, which is, you could have never talked me into trying this, but now that I'm forced to do it, I really like it. <laughs> so. Amen to that. For all the Fertility Bridge clients on here that complained when I forced them to open a Zoom account or do buy a webcam or set it all up for the last couple of years just to do business with us, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, a particular thank you to Dr. Alvaro, to TJ Farnsworth, to Dr. Beltzos. Thank you all so much for coming on and addressing this topic with us. Thanks. Thanks for Take care. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. 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 See you Take guys. Care, Take care. Be well. You've been listening to the Coronavirus Business Response Series on Inside Reproductive Health. If you find our free resources to be valuable, we ask that you share this episode on social media or with a colleague in the fertility field. Subscribe for the latest insights on managing and owning an IVF center or fertility business during the COVID-19 pandemic at fertilitybridge.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts.